Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I'm depressed and I'm anxious, so I need the depression and the anxiety to go away, right? So I'm going to take something that's going to make that go away. And I think a lot of times it's a, a losing battle because maybe the, those emotions are within us for a reason. Maybe they will never go away. And maybe it's just changing our narrative or our association with them or how much like that part of us is, is driving the ship. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Kristen Arden. Kristen is the lead clinician at Mind Bloom, a mental health and well being company on a mission to help people expand their human potential. Mind Bloom offers science backed treatments for anxiety and depression through guided ketamine therapy. Kristen is a proponent for alternative forms of treatment, such as psychedelic medicine. She is a board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner with over 15 years of experience working in mental health. She spent nearly a decade in the California State Hospital System, working with some of our nation's most vulnerable. In addition to her clinical practice, she is a guest lecturer at NYU School of Nursing on topics such as psychedelic therapy and substance use disorders. Kristen graduated from NYU's Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Program and Specialty Track in Substance Use and Addictions, where she received the Distinguished Student Award. She is currently pursuing her DNP, Doctor of Nursing Practice, at Rush University. Friends, this is an amazing episode of Ask the Expert, and I want you all to keep a very open mind. I think many of us have preconceived ideas about psychedelic therapy, psychedelic medicine. I know I have, and this is an opportunity to learn more about the science of it and what it is doing to help people who struggle with depression and anxiety who have struggled treating their mental health with modern medicine. If you've ever been curious about psychedelic therapy, plant medicine, this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy it. Keep an open mind. All right, episode 119. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to The Courage to Change. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for having me today. Really exciting. Really exciting to talk to you. Um, This is our episode of Ask the Expert. So we are having you on as an expert in ketamine therapy. Can you give a little background about yourself and how you got into this position at MindBloom? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first, let's start, start from the beginning. It's kind of, there's a story of kind of how worlds collided a little bit for me. So my first profession was in the music industry as a DJ, as a event promoter and producer. And somewhere in my early twenties, I had this flash forward moment and of fear in thinking about that there was really no guarantees for me if I stayed in that industry. And My mom was a nurse. My mom worked with the developmentally disabled in a state hospital in California. So that world was very familiar to me. And she would always take me to work and uh, with her and try to talk me into going into nursing and and working in mental health. Uh, We have a lot of substance use and mental health uh, issues in our family. uh, So it's something that's very close to home for me. But finally, I took her advice and I went to school. I started working as a psychiatric technician first in the state hospitals. And I uh, continued to kind of pursue uh, further education, continued with schooling. Somewhere along the middle of of my journey, 
I had another aha moment where I started to think that I'm getting all this really great experience in mental health and, and supporting people. And I have this whole community that's really near and dear to my heart and the music and, and uh, festival nightlife community. And I started thinking about how can I support and how can I make those two worlds align? How can I support one community with the other? And I found uh, different groups of people that were volunteering at music festivals, doing harm reduction and crisis intervention, stabilization, all of that really meaning uh, helping people make sure that the things that they're taking are safe or are what they're being told that they are, and really helping support somebody from a psychological and a medical perspective uh, that is having a really hard time. So that was the first, why I think that's important is that was kind of my first time of seeing both how alternative medicines or we call alternative therapies in, in our world of how they can be really positive for people. And I saw people have really just beautiful, very opening experiences. And I saw how they could also be scary. So it taught me a lesson on how important education is around these substances and how to utilize them safely. That was something I carried with me through my education and professional development. I spent about 10 years in the state hospital system in California, or if you don't know much about state hospitals, I think what I would always be told about the state hospitals when I worked there is that was kind of like the last resort and like where nobody else wants you. This is where you have to go because they have to take you. And I thought that that's just the internal narrative that goes around in the hospital, which I think is also just a signal of, of, you know, a lot of work that we needed to do there. And all, another narrative that I became really accustomed to there was the idea that people could be broken, uh, that there's certain people that if we throw every medicine at them and they're not receptive to therapy, again, language, right, that there's really nothing else that we can do for them other than make sure that they have some sort of sustainability in life, but not really that quality of life, right, from a, from a happiness, like, personal growth satisfaction scale, right? Just like pure physical wellness. He survived the day and that's it. And I never really saw this that well with me. So I started just looking out to what was out there in the, in the industry of different ways where we can improve mental health care. And the first thing that came to my mind at the time was technology. So I knew that there was a lot of technology out there and I looked around where I was working and saw a bunch of paper charts and things with very little technology. And I saw just kind of a, had an aha moment where I saw a clear way where we can maybe improve the way that we're delivering mental health care just a little bit by leveraging technology. Uh, followed that journey, that that, that uh, aspiration and kind of goal took me to the, the Veterans Hospital I moved from California to Brooklyn uh, in New York for a role developing a telemental health program for veterans. So that was where we were able to bring technology into the veterans' home with like daily check-ins of a, both a physical health and a mental health assessment to kind of see how somebody's doing and cutting out that the necessity of that person to travel in to the clinic every day or every time that they're having a hard time to be checked in with by a clinician. That was a great program. We had significantly positive results with the program when it came to trying to implement it on a larger, more national scale. This was around 2014. It wasn't really still well received at that time, which is surprising when we think about where how much more open we're becoming to telemental health in current time. So I left the big bureaucratic red tape government systems altogether and started pursuing healthcare technology companies or startups. Because the next thing I had in mind was, okay, how do I get to a place where, where they're fast moving, they have technology, they're really driven by a mission and we can make change happen, right? And actually like at the pace in which change needs to happen. So I worked at a few different healthcare technology companies as a clinician, in a, as a clinician, and then also as a like project develop development type roles, and uh, that's what sort of led me to my bloom. I think what, what my bloom was when we first started was my experience in mental health, healthcare technology, and then also my relationship with the underground scene, the music scene, that that industry. 
uh, and my experience of doing harm reduction and, and crisis intervention in that community. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and, um, it seems to always work that way, right? It's this winding road to how we get to where we need to be. And you, you know, you can't connect the dots looking backward, that it's just, it's, it's, it's how it all comes together. And I love that. I love that you, you were in the, you know, underground scene and we're able to make that into something that connects with mental health. Cause I think that's huge. My husband in our twenties was a DJ. And when you were talking about your mom saying like, I don't know, you, you know, you had a moment of clarity and I was thinking, I was wondering what that clarity was going to be. Cause when I had the moment of clarity for my husband was I can't stay up this late for, for another 10 years. I'm too tired. <laughs> I'm too tired already. So, but the uh, and then interesting that you worked in a state hospital for ten years. That's a long. That's a that's a long time. Was that a high turnover job? It seems like it would be. Yes and no. I think that there's a certain group of people like myself that ended up at working at a state hospital because of uh, family influence. So we saw that a lot. Where maybe you know the mom's mom or dad's about ready to retire, the next generation's coming in there to work in the hospital. Uh, there was definitely a narrative when I was growing up that uh, did not support entrepreneurship. And it was very much like get a pension, get a pension, find a job with a pension, find stability, which is something that you don't really like. I feel like the narrative has completely shifted, right? But that was, I didn't really know many other options. And what I had around me to see as other options was kind of limited. Uh, so, the, the only thing that I saw that I figured, hey, you know, I can do this. I can work with these people. Maybe I can help some of these people. Uh, that was the only thing that made sense to me at that time or that I saw as an option. And I think there was a lot of people around me like that too. I would say as far as the environment there, uh, it's something that every day is really challenging. And you wonder how, you know, you're going to be in your lunch break and you're wondering how you're going to go back after your lunch break. And then every day you're wondering, how am I going to go back there tomorrow? But some of the people that I met there, some of the people that I worked with there, we developed such close bonds and relationships. It's kind of like we're all in it together. And I feel like those are people, it's been a long time since I've worked there that I'm still very good friends with and, and very close with. So I think there was definitely the, the positives. And also too, just that learning environment that I was in, I, that I think really was so instrumental in laying down the foundation of my career and not only how I interact with people and understanding how to support people. I mean, when I first started, I was farthest thing from a clinician. I was, you know, passing out food trays and doing smoke breaks and, and all of that. So I really just learned how to talk to people and, and get at their level, uh, which I think is really important and, you know, working really closely with individuals, especially in a clinician role. So uh, there, I, I also think outside of that, it just really gave me a big picture view of the mental health system. Yeah. Right. And state hospitals as like one of the biggest care providers for people with mental health needs. Right. right? So that, that was, yeah. That was just such a, a wow. Like an aha, like there's work that we need to do and this is why it's hard to do it. And just, it just gave me a lot of perspective that I think it, I still apply in my day by day. And I think fuels a lot of my passion and motivation to like change things. I love that because it could have gone either way. I could see working at a state hospital, a state mental health hospital for 10 years as something to burn you out and we're never going to get better. And, you know, and same with the VA. Oh, it didn't work. Um, we started a, um, I'm co-founder of a, a, a telehealth company that started in 2010. So I relate very much to going out into the world and saying, isn't this great? And then going, oh no, we're not ready for that. And what are you talking about? And we can't do that and all those things. So I, it's a very frustrating feeling. And I, I think it's really awesome that the state, that the, your experience drove you to seek out what is today uh, mind bloom. I do uh, have some questions for you about this, about mind bloom and what kind of what you're, you're doing. Mind bloom's mission is to transform lives to transform the world by radically increasing access to at-home ketamine therapy for anxiety and depression. 
So my first question for you is what is ketamine exactly and how does it work? All right. So ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. So it was first developed and utilized for anesthesia and for analgesia for for reduction of pain. And along the way, it was kind of discovered that it also had positive effects on mood and in reducing symptoms of depression on a neurobiological level. So ketamine is a NMDA receptor antagonist and it's glutaminergic, which means that it increases synaptic glutamate and glutamate is the one of the excitatory neurotransmitters in our body. It's responsible for things like uh, learning, neuroplasticity, and memory. So we can see how a, neurotransmit, a, a neurotransmitter like glutamate with those implications can be a really valuable treatment for things like depression and anxiety. How does it work for, how do ketamine treatments work for your mental health? What is, does it increase the ability to change the pathways in your brain? What does that look like? So I think about ketamine and how it works as a treatment, as a medicine, I'm kind of on two sides. So the one side, I think about what ketamine does from a neurobiological perspective, right? And I think that's more in in line with the traditional medical model of you take a medicine and the medicine is for a certain indication and therefore the downstream effect is hopefully uh, a reduction or an improvement in whatever that indication is that we're aiming to treat. The other side of how ketamine works is through the experience itself and the experience that we have in that moderately disassociative state, the experience that we have, I think the experience starts on a consultation when we first meet and we start thinking about intention setting and then continues all the way through your journey every day through integration and all of that. So there's a whole other the experience with the medicine, the process that I think has other huge implications in how ketamine works as, as a medicine. So to talk a little bit more in deep in detail about those two things, those two sides. So from a neurobiological perspective, I think of ketamine as a as a fertilizer for a brain. So essentially what we've seen on uh, on brain imaging studies is that we can see that it actually enhances uh, synaptic density, which we see impacted in individuals with long-term depression and anxiety, we actually see kind of that the, the, the synapses and neurons in our brain essentially kind of look withered up. I just think it's described as kind of like a tree in the winter. Ketamine, if we go and look at brain imaging studies after somebody's received ketamine, it essentially looks like it's, we have a tree in springtime. It looks a lot, just a lot more full and there's a lot more density. After it's worn off, so it, it that's something that sustains, or is that during the treatment? So it does sustain for a period of time that can, the neurobiological effects can fade over time, right? Uh, but there are certain things that I think that we can do in integration that help promote brain health and help promote holding on to some of these changes that the, the medicine has supported us with on a neurobiological level, which I'll talk a little bit more about in the integration piece. The other thing that ketamine does is it enhances neuroplasticity, which is, like you said, like laying out more connectivity in our brains, which essentially helps us use more of our brain when we interact with things in our environments. So I think about it as both ways, just from a neurobiological perspective, perspective building up resiliency in our brain thinking about the experience side with ketamine. So there's the two parts I think of it as one is when somebody's actually on the medication, like the treatment phase. And then there's the other part, which I think about is set and setting. So preparation and then the integration. So when somebody takes the, the ketamine, the experience that somebody has, uh, so I think maybe that's another discussion of talking about how ketamine feels and there's a lot of different ways in, uh, in which people can experience ketamine, but I'll talk a little bit more specifically to our treatment model and what we target. So our treatment model, we target a moderate degree of disassociation. So with that moderate degree of disassociation, uh, you're, you still know who you are, where you are, what you're doing, what your intentions are. It's just enough of that medicine to kind of help us disassociate from our usual state of consciousness, from our logical mind, and kind of separate enough so that we can connect with ourselves at a deeper level 
We talk about accessing our inner healer or inner healing intelligence. And why that's so important, that moderate disassociative state, is because as we're separated from ourselves and still present, we're really actually more present than we usually are on a typical day. So it's like this hyper uh, presence and connectivity with ourselves, all the while stepping away from ourselves a little bit to really get this opportunity to take a look at ourselves from a different point of view. So maybe thoughts come up or uh, memories come up or uh, emotions come up or like physical feelings or sensations, we sit with that. Uh, And because we're so dialed into that moment, I think it really enhances the ability for us to embody these things. It might be narratives, the same narrative that we tell ourselves throughout our typical day and saying that same thing to ourselves while we're in this space with the medicine and just see people being able to embody that and kind of cross that bridge from something that I know cognitively I need to do uh, to an embodiment of I can do this and I believe this within myself. So we can see a lot of different ways of how the actual that the treatment experience can be extremely therapeutic and valuable. And a lot of it really leading to lasting change for an individual because it's really just helping you rewrite the narratives that you have within yourself, helping you confront the things that are irrational and untrue, but in a way where it's different, like I said, from understanding it and more just like believing it internally to be true, helping us really connect with what we find value and meaning in in our life. So I think somebody going through an experience like that, it's not necessarily something that you forget or you undo because it's a lived embodied experience. So in thinking about why integration is important, we're thinking about how do we make those insights that we gain from the experience stick? How do we, how do we evoke lasting change from the experience that we had? Also thinking about big picture, what the medicine's done from a neurobiological standpoint, is our brain is really primed and ready to go. And there's a a saying that I like that I think really sums up the importance of integration and saying is that neurons that fire together, wire together. And if you don't use them, you lose them. So integration is really the act of using those neurons, helping them fire together, like really reinforce those new neurological pathways and really helping them stick. And the act of integration is like kind of a daily process of checking in with insights that you've gained through the experiences. So it's really this like a, a process of mindfulness and really connecting and becoming more comfortable with these narratives, more in touch with these narratives, so that even if there is some fading from that from the neurobiological side of things, right? That we're doing this work with the experience that is really helping to bolster at the same time, right? And that's where I see the, that lasting effect and change happen. I heard a in, an interview with your CEO, Dylan, and he described it as, you know, you have the it's winter and there are tracks in the snow and that it puts a layer of snow over the tracks, giving you the ability to create a new track. This very much made sense to me. My question, if that's accurate, my question about this analogy is how does the brain know where, what tracks it's covering, right? Like does it cover all of your, are you rewriting and accessing all of your neural pathways or is, does it target the ones you're, you know, you, you've set the intention for? How does that part of it work? So the way I think about it is that if we were to think about taking that a little bit further, right? Like the fresh powder and, and, the, and the slope analogy, if, if we think about putting ourselves at the top of the slope, kind of when we're showing up for treatment and we maybe have just two paths, right? Like we have this being down path of me beating myself down, like the negative thought and the depression and the self-deprecation, right? Like that's one one path down the slope that we've become accustomed to. And then there's the other path that is feeling overwhelmed and fear and catastrophizing and spiraling, right? So I think of each kind of pathway that is usual for us to go down to in response to things as our environment, as those are neurological pathways, right? Because if you think about what's happening, there's a lot of, so much of, of how we 
react to things in our world or how we interact with our environment and we ourselves internally is all uh, a lot of it based on a trigger and a response. So much of this that we're not even realizing that there was a trigger until we're experiencing the response or even further than that, like the backlash from the response, right? So those are those things where I think about, like those are the pathways, right? Because what what is happening when you have this automatic response to something, right? Like it's going visually to memory, to your emotional response or understanding or interpretation of something to like an action, right? So that's all neuro neurobiological pathways. So we think about like trying to understand that a little bit more about, so what do we do with this fresh powder and what are these new pathways? I think about every insight that we gain from this experience, right? Like those uh, connectivity to something greater than me. Like, like if I am really afraid about uh, the state of the world and the meaning of life uh, and existence, and I have an experience where I connect with this overall sense of okayness and a connectivity to something greater than myself out there. Uh, and through integration every day, I close my eyes and I, and I say to myself, you know, there's something, there's something greater than me out there and I'm safe and it all makes sense because I've felt that connectivity to that something greater out there. And I kind of close my eyes and I sit with that feeling or what that felt like in my treatment what I'm thinking about is that's a pathway, right? Now, when that thought comes up for me, like that existential fear crisis thought, I have that pathway of a new opportunity of how to respond to that, right? Like there might still be the old one there, but through the integration work, we're really working to reinforce the new pathways that are maybe, you know, telling yourself something positive about yourself or like seeing a trigger that would maybe produce anxiety or fear and like inserting a moment of pause because in the treatment you learn that like I experienced or I thought about something that would normally holds anxiety or fear for me, but I know that I saw that and I held a moment of pause, right? So I think of that, that's a pathway, right? Like that's you at the top of the slope that you're going through, through your day and trigger happens. Like where do you, what pathway do you default, default to? And so the ketamine treatments, are helping almost expedite that process. Is that, would that be an accurate statement? Expedite the process of the the new neural pathways. I think it lays out the pathways for us from like, we know that from a neurobiological standpoint. And then the experience is a catalyst for like what to do with those pathways, right? Like the content to, to use and kind of reinforce on new, like when we think about kind of reprogramming our thoughts our behaviors, those kind of things. So I think of the experience as kind of like a catalyst for the content and the medicine neurobiologically is like laying down the foundation for that work to really to happen, right? Like building up resiliency uh, so that that work is happening in the ideal, as much ideal as we can make it space for that work to happen versus if we are kind of uh, beaten down from a neurobiological standpoint and, and our brain is kind of worn out to try to do that work in yeah. that state would be a whole different process, right? Right. I think I know the answer to this, but for those of us, you know, one of the, uh, I've been sober over 15 years and been um, battling major depression and anxiety for longer. And uh, one of the coping skills that I developed very young was disassociation. And for me, that, coping when when you talk about it i i it's an interesting uh, what goes through my mind because i have a negative connotation with that because it's been something that my body does or that i do and uh, that has kept me from integrating right and right. and so it's been something that i've worked really hard to go oh this is what's happening to me this is what's happening in my body and try to bring those two things together you're describing this as a positive experience, as as, an, as the ability to follow and integrate. And so I'm curious, do you have an explanation or, or, or description for how those two disassociations are so different? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'd say to start that they are two totally different types of disassociating, right? So like you said, that one 
uh, that a lot of times we experience with with past traumas is a defense mechanism, right? It's kind of like we go within and we separate from the world around us as a, as a protection, right? Like we go in and, and we, we hold ourselves tight and close and kind of put that space between the outside world and ourselves uh, or our body and ourselves, right? To like as a form of protection. And in these experiences with the, the ketamine as a disassociative, I think about it as like us separating from our usual state of consciousness, right? So it's more of an interaction with, with consciousness and a connectivity with ourselves, which I think is is a big difference too, right? So it's like kind of quieting some of the noise around us to connect with ourselves at a deeper level. So it's just really two different processes that go through. I think too, also in our uh, like the dose range that we work in with medicine, it's the closest thing that you can, I can describe it as, is as a deep meditation. Mm. So if you're thinking about how like quieting the noise around us and connecting with ourselves at a deeper level and being really maybe even more, like I said, like hyper aware and hyper dialed into the present moment than we are in a typical day, which I think is a lot different process than uh, like the other type of dissociation where we might lose a lose a moment of time or a period of time and we're just kind of completely removed and separated from ourselves from the space around us stay tuned to hear more in just a moment hi it's ashley joe producer of the courage to change and i wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app lion rock life It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience, join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, Simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. There's a lot of interest in science around psychedelics as treatment. And, um, you know, as someone I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time, I've been in lots of 12 step programs for a long time. And, you know, it's, it's very, as is most things is very controversial and, I'm also uh, alumni of uh, Hop- Johns Hopkins, and so I have this other part of me that's very interested in the science of it and and curious about what it is because I hear things um, that I've never heard before, like we're able to eradicate PTSD, we're able to treat fully treat depression, and as someone who's battled depression. I, I've only treated it with SSRIs and that's, you know, that's, that's what we have, right? That's what, that's the best option that we have. And here I start to hear about this, what the studies are showing. Why is ketamine the only legal psychedelic and what, uh, what, what are you hearing um, coming out of some of these studies that you feel is promising with some of the other substances or plant medicines? Yeah. So first question, why is ketamine the only legal psychedelic? I think just going back to the history of ketamine, right? And looking at the DEA schedule of the drug. So it was already scheduled by the DEA as a schedule three controlled substance and already being used in a lot of different settings. So that's something that is available to practitioners like myself to prescribe and to prescribe off label, right? 
if we have science and we do a lot of science in support of a treatment, then we can uh, validate our decision on using a medication that might not be its primary primary FDA approved indication for treatment, right? So uh, one like a, a common example would be a medication that I use a lot for people with anxiety is propanolol, right? Like propanolol helps uh, lower your heart rate and kind of decreases central nervous system or the fight and flight response, but it's a blood pressure medication. I have a ton of science out there that tells me that I can use for and very very effectively for individuals with anxiety, propanolol. It doesn't have some of the other uh, issues that something like a benzodiazepine might carry. So it's the same same thing with ketamine. So I think why was it the first legal? It just was the one that had that more clear route of availability uh, for use by practitioners and prescribing. I think there's a ton of very exciting and remarkable outcome studies across the, the range of psychedelics that are coming out. Uh, and so I know that I'm very excited, hopefully in the next two years, for FDA approval of MDMA and psilocybin. And then, of course, after after all the FDA and legal side of things is how are we going to prescribe it, Right. So what forms will be available to us and what will that look like, which I'm interesting to, interested to see how, how all of that will play out as well. How, um, when someone, and I don't know if you have this um, experience, do you have people who come to you who are in recovery, who struggle with wanting to heal, but also, you know, maybe they used ketamine um, when they were using or they, they've misused it I would say, I I could see that, you know, the question is, how do you know, right? And this is, how do you know if you're using it in a, in a medically sound way, or you're, you're using it to escape, right? You're abusing it. What's, do you have people who come to you and and kind of explore that area? Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And if I, if I'm doing an evaluation with somebody and they let me know that, that they're in recovery, I want to have a really open and honest dialogue or conversation about it and kind of get an idea of their perception uh, around using this treatment. Like, do they have any fears or guilt? And let's talk, let's talk about that. So I think you, you already alluded to one of the things that I I really kind of hone in on with people is, is the intention, right? Like, what are you, what are you showing up for? And if they tell me, you know, I'm I'm showing up because, you know, I'm really just trying to heal and to, like I want to let go of certain like negative narratives that I carry within myself and like connect with my meaning and purpose. That's a lot of very like mindful intentions, right? Of like really us focusing in and taking a long, long, hard look at ourselves, which is totally different than uh, what we see a lot of times with problematic use patterns, ketamine, right. which is this is a fast acting, uh, disassociative. Uh, like consistent, I take this, I can drop out and kind of separate from my my worries in the world around me. So that is a complete different intention than the person who is in recovery or uh, you know is, is currently struggling with with the substance with substance use. That is looking to like take like take away all the noise around them and get a long hard look at themselves and see like how can I heal right and and like what are some of the things I really need to do the work to kind of start peeling open and getting to the root of. And so that's usually my first start in the conversation with somebody. And then if, if that's where they're at, I think there's a lot to do on our side as clinicians is normalizing this, right? And trying to remove some of that guilt. Uh, there shouldn't be guilt associated with you doing a treatment or a medicine that we know is safe and that can really help you. Uh, I think also to education around uh, what are we doing to reduce the risk of maybe uh, what if I become addicted to this and some education around that too, I think is really helpful for people. So one of the things that we do at my room that I think is really helpful uh, as far as reducing risk for development, developing a problematic use patterns is just the amount of medicine that we give you, right? So you're never going to have so much medicine that you could, you know, do this over and over and over and, and develop that kind of de- psychological dependency 
on this, on the ketamine. So I think that's a big part of it. Another thing that we do is we have people schedule their treatments online. So I think like scheduling in our, um, in our software, when you're doing your treatment, maybe you're in maintenance and you know that every other Sunday you do your treatment and you're logging and checking that in. It's also like you holding yourself accountable, keeping us helping, keeping record of how frequently you're doing the medicine. So I think all of those little things add up to creating a space where hopefully somebody that uh, is in recovery can think about doing this medicine and feel safe in, uh, in pursuing this as a treatment. How does ketamine um, hold up against SSRIs or, you know, um, what we, what layman's terms would be things like Prozac and Lexapro um, antidepressants? Uh, the way I see it's just looking at the outcomes data, right? So as an example, at MindBloom, uh, our data, our current outcomes data show well over 80% of people uh, with significant reductions in symptoms of depression and anxiety. If you look at SSRI outcomes, you'll see ranges between 40 to 60 to 60%, depending on the, the study design uh, and, and the medication that you're looking at. So I think just the outcomes alone speak for themselves. I think another thing that really stands out to me from my from my side as a clinician, and I also I work in another practice outside Mind Bloom. I work in a, in a recovery program, a substance use recovery program, where I'm not able to uh, currently utilize ketamine as a treatment. Uh, so I have the lot of SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, adjuncts with other medication to try to help you know boost the mood. The thing that I deal with all the time there are side effects. Like how well is this person able to tolerate this medicine? And we're doing a lot of switching of the medication just because maybe it did have a positive effect on their mood, then it fades. Maybe they developed a side effect that makes it really hard for them to tolerate the medicine. So it's a lot of changing. Every time we're changing, it's a shock to our system, a shock to our brain. We then have more time while we're waiting for possible uh, efficacy, right? And building up the, the positive effects of the medicine. So it's a lot more sitting and waiting and a lot more battling side effects where we don't have that issue with the ketamine treatment. Very, very low uh, side effects. Side effects are often just in that immediate time following the treatment, like dizziness, lightheadedness, maybe a headache, some nausea. But we don't have those same long-term uh, side effects that we do with the SSRIs and SNRIs. So you work at a substance use disorder program as a clinician, right? So they trust you. They, they, you know, they want you to, to work there. Right. So to me, if you can't convince them, like, what is the, what is the barrier between using this therapeutic treatment in an SUD setting when every single person I personally have ever met who's in recovery, which at this point is a lot, has struggled with some sort of depression and anxiety. I've never met a person um, who's in recovery who did not at some point struggle with some sort of anxiety and depression, which is why I always argue that SUD and mental health, it should be one, you know, are, are, are one and the same. They're not separate. But anyway, that's a, it's a whole other uh, conversation. But how is it that you working there, right? You're inside, you, you, you know, the, what is the barrier to offering this to people who are struggling with those things? Why, 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 why is the stigma so strong that you can't convince them? Yeah. So I think it, it's not really the stigma so much as I think it's a really sad signal of our health care industry as a whole. Okay. So I work, I work actually with individuals that are on parole so recently released from incarceration and uh, on supervised release and uh, have, I work with individuals with serious and persistent mental health needs and chronic, you know, substance use disorders and, and recovery support needs. Uh, the other big piece of it is that they, for the majority, are all Medicare, Medicaid, I mean, they're all of their... Uh, as far as from a payer system go, they're all very, them are insured by Medicare and Medicaid. So I think that shines on just a big problem. Uh, it's something that's really frustrating to me. 
uh, on why we have these great treatments that really help people and uh, have been shown over and over and over to really, really safely reduce human suffering and uh, why I don't insurers like CMS, right? Centers, Medicaid, Medicare services, why don't they reimburse for it? Like why, and I think that shines on a lot bigger issues is that uh, there's a whole group of uh, individuals of, of a one socioeconomic class that I'm able to really help. And then there's a whole other group of indiv- individuals that, in my opinion, I have to, uh, like, I know that there's a treatment that might really, really help them and I can't offer that to them, right? Yeah. Does insurance cover, you know, PPO insurance? Are they starting to cover ketamine treatments? Is that... So the one option that we have and that I have at that clinic and that uh, I've advocated before, before, and I'll say like the, there's some of the people that I've worked with in parole that are, they're very passionate about the people that we're helping. And uh, we saw a lot of this too with cannabis, right? It's like, if you have parole stipulations that say that uh, you can't use any substance, but then you have a medical marijuana card and then there's a state law and federal law. And then what if a judge says that, we make the rules for you and your rules are different and can't really say that if that's somebody's health and treatment. So I think cannabis helped open things up a little bit. We're thinking about individuals on parole and and access to other treatments, which they might've not been as open-minded to. So there's definitely the support, at least where I'm at, I can't speak uh, across the board, but the office that I'm at, uh, I'm really trying to help people. Uh, So there's, there would be the opportunity for me to advocate for somebody to get bravado, which is something that I uh, know certain payers pay for. I haven't had that opportunity yet to kind of get into that advocacy to get somebody referred to a bravado provider. I don't do bravado at that clinic, but I do know because it's uh, a brand medication, right, made by, by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, that they have to offer some sort of like patient benefit program. So if you, and I've sent a, so I've sent people there that can't even afford our program at Mindbloom, which is uh, significantly lesser in cost than most IV or other types of ketamine treatments out there uh, because they can, it's FDA approved, right? So for certain indications like treatment resistant depression or major depression with suicidal ideations. For those indications, somebody can uh, be prescribed Cervato. And then since FDA approved, they can seek reimbursement from their insurance for that. And then they also have the patient assistance program, which I don't know the specifics of, but it usually is a significant cost reduction in the price, but I don't, I don't know if it makes it free or not. So what is the mind bloom model? Does that, is that a cash pay? And, and how does it differ from other, other ketamine treatment programs? Yeah, so our program currently is cash pay, uh, like all the other uh, uh, ketamine treatment centers that are using generic ketamine. Uh, we do uh, offer people their super bill if they ask for it and they can receive reimbursement for the time that they spend with the clinician, right? Like the consultation time, because right. that's something that the health insurer uh, uh, views as a reimbursable service. Uh, I think what how we stand out as being different is that front of mind since we started was how can we increase access to ketamine treatment by reducing barriers to access care. And there are two primary bar- barriers are one cost and two travel, right? Like the location. I've had I have people that have come to us uh, and working with us at Mind that were traveling two hours. Uh, to the nearest IV infusion center. They have to take a whole day off from work. Somebody has to watch the kids because their partner has to drive them there because they can't drive themselves back. Not everybody has that convenience or luxury to be able to one, like time is money, right? And so that's a big loss on just the time and production wise of supporting a family. And then, and also too, like if taking off the time from work and having a, a partner to drive you there, right? Like all that's all, all of those things are barriers to somebody accessing care. And with my boom, we're always trying to think outside the box on how can we continue to reduce the price point. Very recently, we dropped our price uh, even further than we were before. I think we reduced it somewhere around twenty percent, uh, and just continuing to try to lower the price point. Something that is really. Uh, one of our top goals right now and, and our, one of our primary objectives, our point of focus is uh, publishing 
our outcomes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the idea being we have a very large data set, maybe one of the largest data sets of both safety and outcomes and using ketamine to treat both depression and anxiety. And if we publish these outcomes like we're planning to, they, the, the whole big purpose of that would be to then take that those published outcomes in that study and begin knocking on doors of payers and saying, hey, yeah. this is really safe. This really helps people. This, we're talking big, big picture utilization of care and care expenditure, right? Like this makes a lot more sense. Now, just thinking on the numbers side, besides like the big picture from the personal side of, of the impact on uh, reducing human suffering and increasing human capital and all of that. So I think that's something that's really front of mind for us. And that's what helps us stand apart from, from other ketamine providers. What's your favorite story, success story that you have where that, you know, comes to mind when you think of the tremendous benefits that this kind of therapy can have on people with depression and anxiety? Hmm. There's, so, there's so many going through the files. <laughs> uh, so the first person that I, it comes to mind is one of my first clients. So I think this is back when I was, but it was actually when I, when I first met this individual, we had our treatment center in New York city open. So we met in person and I, I did the, the first treatment with this individual in person. And what stands out to me is this person was in their early 60s. Uh, when I met them, they were on seven to eight different medications, had had treatment-resistant depression and, you know, depression and anxiety uh, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of time run hand and come with the, the evil twins, right? Like they're, they show up together. Uh, so this person, something that I thought was, it really stood out to me too, is just after 30 years of treatment resistant depression in the last year, had had six different medication changes, which you think about going through like suffering from a disorder for 30 years and you're 30 years down the road. And we're still at the point where we're like doing, like trying six different meds at this point. I think about, we're just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping something sticks. Mm -hmm. And so if we sit back and think about what does that feel like for that person, that feels like for that person, a lifetime, you know, 30 years or a whole adult life, essentially of suffering, right? A whole 30 years of reinforcing a narrative of hopelessness and helplessness, right? Like I'm never going to get better. Every medication I've tried hasn't helped me. Now there's, uh, I'm so sick that in the last year, like six, I've had six different medications thrown at me. And maybe there was a discussion to some point or a discussion that they interpreted as like, we're running out of options to help you. Mm. This person had actually been told by their therapist that they had hit a wall. And I remember when them telling me that is that they interpreted that as, okay, well, like the medicine's not working for me. Like even therapy can't help me anymore. Like they felt like when they heard that, that they were being essentially fired by their therapist. And it's like, I hit a wall. I don't really know what else to do with you. So when I met them, uh, the thing I remember that stands out to me about their journey so much is that the first couple treatments, uh, they were really excited about like this, like a psychedelic journey and experience. And the first couple treatments was, were very calm and relaxing and deeply meditative, but didn't like blow their mind as far as like, you know, I saw my depression as a tree and I chopped the tree down and my depression went away with it. You know, it wasn't that kind of a symbolic, clear aha moment, but that person through a series of treatments, as I began working with them, they became to, began to connect with the feelings that they had while they were doing the medicine of like, I'm laying down for 30 minutes and I know that I have the ability to, to, quiet my mind. I know that I have the ability to like overcome something. I committed to doing this and, and I've been showing up every week and doing this treatment and I've been committing to that and showing up for myself. I remember her telling me that uh, in one of her treatments, she like connected with a feeling of love and happiness and like felt emotions that she of like joy and like connected to that, to the happiness that she hadn't felt in a long time. So it was just like her identifying with, I think, parts of herself that have been kind of shifted to the back of the stage and she's been kind of blocked off from and like giving herself space from some of those like parts of herself that have been very front and center and really just kind of 
the, the product of what's like she's built up around herself all these years to protect herself. Right. So her case really stands out to me is I've worked with, uh, with her for over, over about the last year, the year and a half or so periodically, we used to see each other a lot more frequently, but she's doing a lot better, less frequent booster treatments. As we were doing the, the closer series of treatments, she would work with her psychiatrist to slowly taper off of all of the, her other medications, which all in my mind, all of them, like the the SSRI, SNRI, the benzodiazepine, and felt better than she'd ever felt. Wow. And was feeling better than she ever felt without all of those medicines, which maybe had been even contributing to some of like the lack of energy and the apathy yeah. and the flattened mood and, and all of that. Wow. So learning for me, because it saw to me uh, that really validated to me that this really works, uh, that it can do things that are remarkable, like getting somebody off of all of those medications, like helping somebody really connect with emotions that they've been completely detached to like joy and happiness uh, and that those things stick. Right. I saw her also too. One of the things I learned working with her is that when, when we're sick, we create a world around us that supports us mm. being sick. Right. Like we create a world as like us that sick creates a world around us that fits that. And as we grow and heal, that world around us shifts too, right? Like it might be, and I've seen it be really uncomfortable for people, but that's where other changes start happening that compound our own, our own personal healing and growth, right? It's like that job that we've been miserable at and we've never left or that, that, that toxic boss that verbally abuses us every day. And like, we think that like we will never find anything better or that those, maybe we believe that those things are true. So we stick around where now I know those things aren't true. And like, I know that all we have is the present moment. So how do I make the present moment the best that it can be? Right. Like this a partner, this partner that I have that it beats me down and tells me I'm ugly and all of these things that I used to believe about myself. Now I don't anymore. So like, how do I remove this person from my life and put people around my life that see me the way I see myself today and value me the way that I believe I should be valued. Right. So I think I saw that in her and in her shifting the world that she built around her. I saw her get a completely new job, saw her move, leave the state. So, and I've seen that with, with a lot of other people too. So all of that stands out. It's really remarkable to me because it's completely outside of like what we know in traditional treatment of psychiatry is I'm depressed and I'm anxious. So I need the depression and the anxiety to go away. Right. So I'm going to take something that's going to make that go away. And I think a lot of times it's a, a losing battle because maybe the, those emotions are within us for a reason. Maybe they will never go away. And maybe it's just changing our narrative or our association with them or how much like that part of us is, is driving the ship. Right. Yeah. I was thinking while you were, while you were talking about these changes and these, these cognitive, you know, cognitive behavioral type changes. And I was thinking, you know, the way it was described to me from a very young age was that my brain does not make enough chemicals to sustain a, a mental state of joy and happiness, basically. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, you know, filling in some blanks here, but that I, the narrative was my brain is not, and I, I believe, which is unusual. I believe when I was young, they did some sort of testing to actually see serotonin levels. And, and I was told that my brain doesn't work right. And, and it's a chemical imbalance, right? You hear that chemical imbalance. And what you're, what I hear you talking about a lot is this, these pathways that open up to see things and that, I really hear you give saying that the depression and the anxiety are red flags or warning signs or, or alerts within us about things in our life and that they aren't necessarily, there's a chemical imbalance wrong with you. And that's interesting. That's a new narrative that I haven't heard a lot of, which is basically that I am not going to get well unless I have the right chemicals in my brain to help 
them. And so I've always seen it that way. And, and it are, are, does that exist? Is that, you know, that chemical imbalance or are those two things, is it two different things? The, the chemical imbalance and then the, the depression that's situational. I think, you know, to some degree that there could be some neurobiological, uh, propensity to, to things, right? I think for a long time we've tested the hypothesis, we call the monoamine hypothesis of treating depression, which is essentially like all around modulating things like serotonin and norepinephrine to produce a positive effect on mood. Uh, and there are people that have had that take Lexapro or Prozac and have remarkable outcomes or results. So I don't think that there's a, a, a one size fits all for everybody. I think what I see this as is just another approach, another option. And it's, it's something that works really well for a lot of people, but not to take away from the people that there's nothing wrong or bad with, like if you do take other medications and they work for you, that's totally fine too. I think it also is a big picture, uh, thinking about big picture, what this means for us is it's giving us other options on like, what do we want for our healthcare, like for our mental health care? Like what are our values and beliefs? Some people have very strong values and beliefs against taking a medication every day. Yeah. And even if they, it's helping them, they want one way or another to get off of that pill. Right. Yep. So I think this is for an option too, where it's now we're not dependent on that pill every day that we need to, you know, balance out the neurotransmitters in our brain and like make us feel better. There's another option. And I think in this option that there's a whole nother piece attached to it, like I talked about, which is the whole experience, both working with the medicine and the integration period, which I think is just like an added on positive component of the, the, these types of therapies. Like we have the neurobiological side, and then we also have the whole process and healing journey. Awesome. Do you have recommendations for people who want to learn more and, and study up on this? Do you have recommendations for books or, or videos online that, um, that would offer that kind of education? Yeah. So I'd say what a great resource is actually our website, our mind bloom website. So we've set, so when, since we first started our website, the, the idea that we had behind it is how can we make a very trusted and legit source or a resource for people to use to find uh, valid, well-validated and legit, and legit information about ketamine therapy, psychedelic medicine therapy, integration. So uh, I, I love our website. All of our blog posts there are co-written by our writing team and our clinician team, the people like myself and, and our other clinicians. So I think that's pretty awesome because we have that like when we talk about being legit, it's co-written by the by professionals. There's a really great article on our website about the neurobiology of ketamine that uh, one of our medical advisors uh, contribute, contributed to and actually wrote, which I think is one of the best resources out there for the neurobiology of ketamine because it's very detailed, but okay. it's the same Right. So it's detailed and it's set in a way where you can understand it, but doesn't take away from the really important scientific stuff that uh, is really valuable to a lot of people to know. Uh, as far as resources outside of uh, the, the Mind Bloom website, there is for thinking about science and like evidence, a resource uh, around those lines. I love the, the ketamine papers by Phil Wolfson. So that's a collection all different ketamine papers or a collection of, of research about ketamine. I think that's a great resource. Uh, my go-to for integration and then kind of just the psychological theory behind this work is Stan Groff. So uh, anything, if you look up any of the books by Stan Groff, uh, I highly recommend them too. Awesome. Awesome. And where can people find you and reach out? Do you have any public profiles? Yeah, so currently just you can reach me by contacting MyBloom, reaching out to MyBloom. There is, uh, if you want to, if you're thinking about signing up for a program, it's really easy. You can go onto our website and click get started or, or sign up. It's pretty straightforward. If you have any questions and want to talk to me directly, uh, what you can do is just message in support at mindbloom.co. It's, it's easy to remember because it's the email at the bottom of our website. And you can just say that, you know, you listen to this podcast today and Kristen was on it and you want to talk to her specifically or directly and I'll have one of our guides coordinate that. Awesome. 
Thank you so, so much for being here and answering all of my questions. This is very exciting. And I hope that uh, the mental health community is able to make room for more tools to treat and help us, you know, with our brain health. Yes, I agree. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. I've really enjoyed this conversation and getting to know a little bit more about you and sharing in this time together today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.